We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. God of grace, please open up these enigmatic scriptures for us today and let us hear what you would have us hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Certain sensations remind you vividly of your childhood, whisk you back like a time machine. I lived in Stockton for the first 12 years, the first 11 years of my life. So for me, these sensations include the taste of fresh peaches, the smell of chlorine, trying to see across the street through the dense Thule fog to the houses on the other side of the street, impossibly hot pavement, and hearing a congregation sing our hymn for today, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It probably isn't even close to true that we sang this hymn every single Sunday at Lincoln Presbyterian Church, but it felt that way. We sang from the green hymnal, which was the Presbyterian hymnal before the red hymnal, which was before the blue hymnal we use now. The green hymnal was published in 1933, and almost 2% of Presbyterian congregations still use it today. There's a line in the song, give me that old time, time religion that goes, it was good enough for grandma, it's good enough for me, and maybe that's the way some folks feel about their green hymnals. So I thought of holy, holy, holy as the most Presbyterian of all hymns, but in fact, it was written by an Anglican. Reginald Heber was born in 1783 into a privileged and educated family in Cheshire, England. He was something of a prodigy, translating a Latin classic into English verse by the time he was seven years old, entering Oxford at 17, and winning two awards for his poetry while he was there. After Oxford, he became the rector of his father's church in the village of Hodnet in the west of England. One writer describes his 16 years at Hodnet as a halfway position between a parson and a squire, a squire being an English country gentleman. He was known for his devoted care of his congregation, but also for his literary work. He wrote 57 hymns, served on the staff of a literary journal, and was friends with prominent writers of the time. He was the first to compile a hymnal ordering hymns around the church calendar. Heber abandoned the comfort and prestige of his life at Hodnet because he felt called to India. In 1823, at the age of 40, he was appointed as Bishop of Calcutta, where he worked tirelessly for three years until the weather and his extensive travel throughout the region took its toll on his health, and he died of a stroke. After his death, his wife found Holy, Holy, Holy among some of his writings and passed it on to noted musician John Dykes, who composed and arranged the hymn for publication in 1861. Heber had written Holy, Holy, Holy for Trinity Sunday, and so Dykes named the tune to the hymn Nicaea, because it was the first Council of Nicaea that formalized the doctrine of the Trinity in 325 AD. Heber not only specifically mentions the Trinity in the hymn, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, he uses the symbolism of three repeatedly. 
God is holy, merciful, and mighty. God is perfect in power, love, and purity. God is worshipped by saints, cherubim, and seraphim. And God is praised in earth and sky and sea. He's a poet. Heber draws much of his imagery in the hymn from Revelation chapter 4, the scripture passage for today. Most people's impressions are that the book of Revelation is violent and fearsome. Four horsemen unleash destruction and calamity on the earth. Mysterious numbers like 666 spell destruction. Mutant locusts, no large lizards, but multi-headed beasts terrify and and that there's an end times battle of Armageddon that leaves millions slaughtered. It's no wonder we stay away from it. And it doesn't help that what many people know about Revelation, or I should say what they think they know, comes from the Left Behind series, what one commentator calls Christian fiction on steroids. (laughs) Or that Revelation has repeatedly provided raw material for self-appointed prophets to make vile predictions about future world events, none of which seem to come to pass. Revelation is certainly one of the most difficult books in the Bible. It's full of strange and scary and even violent symbolism. A couple of years ago, the Horizons Bible Study, that's the Bible study published by our denomination's Presbyterian Women's Organization, the Horizons Study was about Revelation. And it provided terrific and very accessible insight into the historical uh, context of Revelation. The title of the study was Journeys Through Revelation, Apocalyptic Hope for Today. And the author of the study, Barbara Rossing, asserts that the most important thing for us to know about Revelation is that it is, at its core, a message of hope. Journey Through Revelation takes us back in time 2,000 years ago to the struggling churches in the bustling cities of the Roman Empire. Revelation was written in the late late first century during the last years of Emperor Domitian. The author of Revelation, John of Patmos, is a seer, a visionary. He sees the problems, the injustices, the tragedy of the Roman Empire prosperity for some, violence and misery for many. There wasn't systematic persecution of Christians at the time, but simply attempting to be a faithful Christian in the Roman Empire led to hardship. Those who openly pledged allegiance to Christ over and against the emperor were economically and socially excluded from the larger community. Saying no to Rome's kingship, was a daring, subversive claim. So John of Patmos leads us through a series of visions. Visions are a standard feature in apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse actually means revealing, as in Revelation, as though a veil has been removed. And apocalyptic literature is sort of like superhero literature or science fiction literature today. There's space and time travel. There are scenes of terrifying and life-changing power born of very human desperation. John's readers knew not to take these visions literally. 
As the journey unfolds, each successive vision reminds us that God alone is worthy of our praise and allegiance. The first three chapters take place on earth, and then at the beginning of chapter 4, which we started this morning, John is summoned up to heaven. The first vision is the heavenly throne room. God, we're told, looks like jasper and carnelian, two semi-precious stones, and God is surrounded by an emerald-like rainbow. These images lack something for our 21st century imaginations. I have a hard time getting past the idea that this emerald green rainbow is missing five of its six colors. The point is the majesty of God. It might be a fun exercise for us to conjure up a wildly imaginative image of God that would appear majestic and truly awe-inspiring today in 21st century Northern California. For example, would God be sitting on top of a redwood tree? Would the monstrous crashing waves at the Maverick surfing competition bow down before God? John pictures 24 elders casting their crowns before God. The line in the hymn is, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. In the throne room of the Roman emperor, people sang songs of allegiance and liturgies of praise, and petty kings, subject to the emperor, would throw their crowns before him as a sign of his supremacy, a sign of their allegiance and subservience and worship. So John uses the image to remind us that only God, not the emperor or the empire, is worthy of worship. Only thou art holy, wrote Heber. Now, Heber also lived in an empire, the powerful and growing British Empire. India was a part of that empire. On the one hand, we see Heber leaving a life of comfort to minister to people in a foreign land. On the other hand, from our perspective a couple of hundred years later, we know that it is always the case with empire that the goals of religion and the goals of economic and political domination get mixed together. How much of that could Heber see? I don't know. What I do know is that Heber's hymn and the book of Revelation remind us that worshiping God is subversive to empire. It is the antidote to empire and to all the powers that are at cross purposes with God's purposes. Worship and allegiance are central themes throughout Revelation. In response to the crisis faced by first century Christians, John tried to sharpen the alternatives of worshiping either the emperor or God. We still have to choose. We don't live in the Roman Empire in the first century or the British Empire in the 19th. But the scripture passage and the hymn raise these questions for us. What powers, other than God, are we at risk of worshiping today? What powers do we give our ultimate allegiance? The community that worships God is the alternative to empire 
and to all the powers at cross purposes with God's purposes. The community set up by Jesus, a universal community of every nation, every language, and every people, created by his witness of nonviolent love, forgiveness, gratitude, inclusion of the outcast, justice for the poor, and joy, is a community that sings praise to God, not the emperor. It is a community that sings of its hope and trust that God's will for all creation is peace, freedom, healing, well-being, shalom. Songs are a huge part of the book of Revelation. Perhaps that's because, as Brian Blount writes, songs unbind people from their fear. When we planned worship for today, our resident Francophile, John Parfit, suggested an all-French musical program because yesterday was Bastille Day, the French national holiday celebrating the beginning of the French Revolution. He lightheartedly tossed around the idea of using Can You Hear the People Sing from the musical Les Miserables, which involves a later French uprising. And it occurred to me that a desperate song about revolution, ending with the hope in God's vision for the world, was the perfect anthem for today when we're preaching the book of Revelation. I'm guessing that when you woke up this morning and decided to go to church, you weren't thinking that you were about to do something daring, something powerfully subversive. I'm guessing it didn't occur to you that by singing hymns today, by praying shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters, by hearing God's word proclaimed, you are standing in opposition to the many powers that strive to rule our hearts and minds every day, everywhere. Consumerism, nationalism, racism, militarism, religious extremism, the destructive divisiveness of our political system. But you are. And I never would have thought that one of the most traditional, most lofty, most Presbyterian of all the hymns in our hymnal, even though it was written by an Anglican, is in fact one of the most alternative, and even rebellious. But it is. Holy, holy, holy. Only thou art holy. There is none beside thee who wert and art and evermore shall be. Amen and amen.